Father in heaven, here we are. In the silence of our own hearts right now, we ask that you would hear our prayer, that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you so much that your word is living and active. Lord, may we come to it with humble hearts, asking you the way of life. May we come to it expecting that you will direct our footsteps, that you will empower us to live a brand new life. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit as we dig into your word together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now I know none of you buy lottery tickets, but just for the sake of an illustration, let's pretend that you did and that tomorrow you found out that you had won $170 million. $170 million. How would that change your perspective in life? How would that change how you felt about the future? Would you be kind of excited about life? Now granted, it doesn't always work out well for those that that win large fortunes. There's a guy by the name of Whitaker who won, I think it was over $300 million back in the early 2000s, and he's become famous because of all that's happened to him since he won that millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. He ended up getting, he was at a strip club, that was obviously one of his problems, and he was robbed of half a million dollars. (laughs) That's the other problem, he was carrying half a million dollars around with him. He's lost a lot of his money on bad deals and gambling and doing a lot of other things. It hasn't worked out that well for him. But let's pretend that you had $170 million, but that it wasn't in a cashier's check and it wasn't in cash, but it was actually in gold and silver. Actually, the metal itself. And you had all of this metal. Now imagine that you had 25 tons of silver and that you had close to four tons of gold and close to four tons of silver uh, dishes. Okay, so not silver coins, but silver dishes. And now imagine that you need to take a 900-mile journey walking from here south. Maybe you bring a few friends with you. You could have maybe uh, some of your family come along. In fact, you'd probably have to invite a lot of your family to be able to even carry your money. But Imagine that you're walking south and you're going on a journey 900 miles south. How many of you are excited to walk through L.A. with $170 million? I don't see many hands raised. It wouldn't work out that well, would it? This is a problem that Ezra faced. Ezra is a man who comes on the scene 70 years after the story that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at how Zerubbabel came to rebuild the temple, and he had that decree from Darius that only the Holy Spirit could have inspired this pagan king to give him this limitless ability to rebuild the temple when the Samaritans were trying to stop it. Only the Holy Spirit could have inspired the king to not only give him permission, but to fund it with his own money, with the taxes from his people. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Have you experienced that this week? I hope that as you face challenges, you remember that it's only the Holy Spirit that moves the mountains in our life. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. 
But if you fast forward 70 years, things had gone fairly well. They had rebuilt the temple within about four years. They had completed building at least the structure, the main structure of the temple. And they'd had a dedicatory service. They had worshipped. They'd had their first big Passover celebration. But you fast forward 70 years, and the people in Judea are still scattered. They're still disorganized. The walls of the city are still broken down. In fact, the temple really hasn't been restored to its full glory. And Ezra sees that there's a problem. But Ezra is a friend of the king. Let's pick up the story in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, we pick up the story of Ezra. Now, Ezra was actually one of the sons of Aaron, he records in his genealogy here, which is a pretty big deal. He was of the priestly line from the high priest Aaron, the very first high priest. And in verse 6, it says this, this Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. Ezra has a close relationship with the king. Now, it's believed it's because he's a scribe of the law of Moses, so he was somebody that had understanding into the the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion. He understood the books of Moses. He understood the Old Testament. And so somehow, through this learning, he had become elevated in the kingdom. And Artaxerxes, this is, again, 70 years later, so we're at a different king. Artaxerxes, as he's there, Ezra comes to him with a request. Now let's look briefly at how he grants this request. Because Ezra says, he granted me all of my requests. Everything that I asked for, he gave to me. This skilled scribe. In in verse 11, it tells us that there's a copy of the letter in the following verses. And it actually, if you were reading in a Hebrew Bible, you would know for sure that this is a copy because it begins in Aramaic, starting in verse 12, where it says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. What kind of impact has Ezra had on this pagan king, Artaxerxes? Here he is saying the, the God of the, the law, the, 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 the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. He's sending him up, and all of his counselors are agreeing with us, sending him up to inquire and to implement the law of God. This is an amazing thing because Babylon had their own system of gods. Babylon had their own system of laws. But he's sending him saying, hey, you go to that land and you implement the law of the God of heaven. And then verse 15, it gets even better. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. He's sending offerings himself. And his counselors are sending offerings themselves. Again, you see that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Here, the the Israelites are having problems in Judea and God provides the solution through a king who had all the rights to their money and all the rights to their service, and instead, he's sending his money with them. 
He's sending his blessing with them. And it gets even better as you keep on reading. He's sending all of the silver and gold. He tells them to buy lambs, to buy uh, offerings. He, he tells them to prepare for the service of the temple, whatever sees good to you. And then you go down and you read in verse 21, it says, And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Whatever Ezra asks, do it. You who have the money, the resources, you have a blank check. Do whatever Ezra asks you to do. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. He goes on to tell them that they up to a hundred talents of silver, limitless salt, whatever, verse 23, is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. And then he says something very fascinating in verse 23. He says, for why should there be wrath against the realm of the king of his son, and his sons? Why should there be wrath against the king and his sons. He recognizes that there is a God in heaven, a real God who to serve results in blessing and to, to forsake, to turn away from, will result in curses. So he says, go ahead and serve to the best of your ability. Here's all of this gold. Here's all of this so that you can do offerings properly so that there's blessings rather than curses on my kingdom. It's interesting, at this time, he was facing some really big challenges. This is the time period where Egypt had rebelled against him. Egypt was, at that time, one of uh, his provinces, and Egypt was under his control, but suddenly they had revolted against him, and they were trying to rebel against him, and he was facing all of these challenges around him. And at this time, to send this money to go with these Jews to go off to their land to build their temple may not have made a lot of sense to a king like this. How is it going to help his armies to defeat the Egyptians who were revolting? But it's interesting that in the next couple of years, God did bless that king and turn things around with the Egyptians and enabled him to keep control of his kingdom. This is around the year of 457 B.C., if there are any historians out there. We keep on reading. There's other fascinating things in there. It says that basically the taxes from the land again are to be used for this. In verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, Set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. You are to go and you're to implement all of the laws of the God of heaven and anybody that doesn't know the law, you're to teach it to them. I want for everybody to know the law of Moses. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. guess he didn't believe in the separation of church and state now, did he? Here this pagan king is endorsing Ezra fully. He's telling him, you're going to go back and you're going to rule in this area. You're going to have all of these magistrates and tell them to do whatever you command them according to the law of God. Now this is the third decree to go and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. This is the fullest decree that includes all of the organization of the government 
of Judea. This is the decree that we base what happens in Daniel when we read about 2,300 days in the prophecy there in 457 B.C. This is a significant occurrence that takes place, and it takes place at a request of a Hebrew scribe named Ezra. Ezra is excited about this in verse 27. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Ezra's excited. Ezra's encouraged because God is showing up. He's again proving true to those prophecies of Zechariah chapter 4 that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that I'm going to spread the plumb line. I am going to help you in rebuilding Jerusalem. But what was it that gave Ezra such confidence to go to the king to ask for these things? What was it that Ezra had done? It's interesting because at this point, he goes and he gathers the men together and he gathers them at the river Ahava. And they're there. They begin to assemble everybody. And Ezra's quite disappointed at the group that comes. Do you remember how many came when Zerubbabel went to take his group back to Israel? There was about 43,000 people that came. So here Ezra is summoning people. He's saying, look, it's time for us to go back. And we have even bigger promises from this king. We're going to go back and we're going to finish the job. And then he looks around at all the people that come when they assemble, and there's about 1,800 men that show up. 1,800 this time compared to 43,000 last time. They have their women and their children, which may add up to about 8,000. It's really a small group to be heading across the desert. And not only that, but they have been given 24, Five tons of silver. That's about 650 talents of silver, it tells us. They've been given, it's about close to four tons of silver vessels and about four tons of gold. And they have to transport all of this across the desert. Now, look at what takes place in verse 21. In verse 21 of chapter 8, it says this, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. Remember how Jesus said when the disciples couldn't cast the demon out, he said that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain to be cast into the sea and it will do it. Nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind only comes out by what? Prayer and fasting. Here he proclaims a a three-day fast there at the river Ahava to humble themselves before God, to seek from him the right way for them and for their little kids to be able to cross this desert. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Are you seeing a pattern here? It's interesting how often Ezra talks about the hand of God being upon them. It's only a phrase that's used in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's used about six times here. We've come across 
About four of them so far. We saw it back in verse 6 of chapter 7. We saw it in verse 9 of chapter 7. And then we saw it again in verse 28 of chapter 7. And now we see it again in chapter 8. The hand of our God is upon us for what? For for all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. No wonder that king in his decree, which experts tell us that this is for sure a decree from Artaxerxes. We can doubt this. We can uh, know for certainty, not just from the Bible record, but secular historians will say that this has to be a decree from Artaxerxes about this. In his decree, he says, this is for the God of heaven so that wrath be not against us. Ezra had taught the king about the God of heaven. Ezra had taught him that the hand of God is upon those who seek him for good and and that there's wrath against those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayers. But wait a second. Why doesn't he just go back to the king, really, and just ask for an army to take him across the the desert. This wouldn't have been uncommon. We know uh, just a few hundred years later that they were doing this regularly in order to bring the taxes back from Judea. They would send a small army in order to protect all of the money that was bringing, brought back with taxes. So here he's going across the desert. He has $170 million. And a little bit later on, it tells us that there were people waiting in ambush for him. He knows that he has enemies along the way. He knows that he has his little kids to care for. He knows that he has all of this gold, all of this silver, and that there are angry people wanting his money. Just like Mr. Whitaker, who won the lottery, he knows that he too could be robbed. And yet, he chooses not to go back to the king. He chooses not to go back and say, hey, wait a second, one more thing. You've done all of this for us. Now would you also help us to cross the desert? But instead, he says this, let's fast and pray. Because we told that king, we told him that that God would have his hand on us for good. That he would have his power on us. And we can't go back to him and say, well, we don't know how to protect ourselves. We We have to go forward in faith, trusting that our God will see us through. In the book Prophets and Kings, it says, In this matter, Ezra and his companions saw an opportunity to magnify the name of God before the heathen. Faith in the power of the living God would be strengthened if the Israelites themselves should now reveal implicit faith in their divine leader. They therefore determined to put their trust wholly in him. We read this story and we think, well, yeah, that's great. He went across the desert Think about it. If you had to walk through L.A. with $170 million on you, what an adventure that would be. How challenging that would be. And here goes Ezra across the desert, trusting in the mighty hand of God that is upon him. What gave Ezra that kind of faith? Go back to a verse that we skipped over. Ezra chapter 7. We look at the first few verses. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So it took him four months to cross the wilderness, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And then verse 10 explains how he was able to have this faith, how he was able to have the good hand of God upon him. 
For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had been preparing his heart. Ezra didn't know that he was going to win this favor from Artaxerxes, that he would have $170 million worth of gold to take across the desert. Ezra didn't know the type of faith he would need to have in God. But Ezra, year by year as a young scribe, he prepared his heart for that moment. He meditated on the law of God. He studied the law of God. He sought the law of the Lord. Not just sought it, but he also sought to do it and to teach it. Ezra immersed himself in the Word of God. And you know, Paul says in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So what were some of those promises that Ezra might have grabbed a hold of? What was some of that in the law of God that Ezra might have taught Artaxerxes that gave him this confidence to say, the hand of God will be upon us. He will protect us. We can trust in Him. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a chapter that reveals to us the blessings that come through faithfulness to God. Starting in verse 7, it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They will come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you and your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, just as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. Since God is going to establish you in this land, and his very act of establishing you will lead people to fear God, to acknowledge who he is, to a knowledge of the true God. There will be this blessing that your enemies will be turned away from you. Now, there was a caveat that comes a bit before this that I skipped over. If you look at verse 2, it says how these blessings would come on them. Verse 2 says, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Why? Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's blessings in obedience. There's blessings in following the will of God. Ezra immersed himself in Scripture and he realized that to follow the counsel of his loving Father in heaven would result in blessing. It reminds me of when I played basketball in high school. I went to an academy, a small school, and so they didn't have many tall players, but here I was at six foot five, six foot six, and they said, You are going to be our center. And so they put me in on the basketball court, and I didn't know how to play basketball very well. And I had this problem. People would pass me the ball, and I would swing it down like this, and everybody that was smaller than me would take the ball away from me. So I'd go back to the bench, and the coach would be like, look, Zach, you need to stop lowering the ball. Keep the ball above your head. Okay, okay. So I'd go back out on the court, and I'd grab the ball, and I'd put it down like this, and everybody would take the ball away from me again. So he'd yell, time out. And he'd call me out and he'd say, look, Zach, you have to keep the ball above your head. I said, okay. He said, if you keep the ball above your head, nobody else will be able to reach it. They'll all be jumping and they won't be able to reach the ball. I said, okay, okay. I'll, tr- I'll, I'll try to remember this because I believe that you know what's good for me. I'm going to do this. So they would pass me the ball and he'd have them pass me the ball up high. So then I would grab the ball and I'd jump and I'd turn around and I'd shoot it and I'd miss. So he'd 
called me back out eventually after a number of times of doing this. I still wasn't scoring any points. And he said, look, Zach, don't just jump in the air and turn around. You can't make a good shot like that. He said, what I want you to do is to take the ball, have it in the air, and then to pivot around the person behind you. And then you'll be right in front of the basket. It'll be two feet from you. You can't miss it. You can do this, Zach. So I, I didn't listen to him at first. I kept doing this jump turnaround shot and I would make a few of them and he would be frustrated, honestly, even if I made the basket. Eventually, he started telling me, look, my wife and I are thinking about paying you to do what I'm telling you to do because it would help you that much. So finally, I got it through my head. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And let me tell you, it made a huge difference in my basketball career because I'm really tall and it's really easy to just toss it in the basket when you're that tall. My coach had my good in mind, and so I trusted what he had to tell me or eventually learned to trust what he had to tell me, and it made a difference in my life. When we come to know God for who he is, we realize that his commandments to us are not about how he can restrict our lives. His commandments to us aren't about how we can... uh, They are about how he wants to bless us how he wants to give us good things in our life. He knows what's best for us. And he says, when you do these things, you will be blessed. All of this will be the result. Good things will happen. Your enemies will be turned away from you. Ezra knew that this was the promise of God. And Ezra had probably told Artaxerxes about Moses bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, Artaxerxes had probably heard that. And he knew that God's hand was on his people for good. Ezra had probably told him the stories about David being chosen as a king and how God had laid his hand upon him and made him a king. Ezra was a skilled scribe in the law of God. He knew the law of God. He knew the history of Israel and he knew the promises and that gave him faith. In the book in Heavenly Places it says this, Educate yourself to have unlimited confidence in God. Cast all your care upon Him. Educate yourself to have unlimited confidence in God. Cast all of your care upon Him. Believe that God will do what He's promised that He will do in your life. Ezra educated himself as a young man, as a scribe. Day by day, he was laboriously going through the Scriptures, studying the promises, studying verse by verse, studying the stories. And he came to know that God was faithful. And that when God put his hand on you for good, that God would put his hand on you for good when you sought him. There was probably some other promises that came to his mind. He was just a few hundred years after Isaiah, and Isaiah had prophesied that when you go through the fire, I will be with you. He probably had some of those promises in mind. But there's also some amazing promises about what God will do for us as a shield against our enemies. Go to Psalm chapter 84 with me. Psalm chapter 84 and verse 11. Ezra would have known this promise being a skilled scribe in Scripture. He would have studied these things and he wouldn't have just studied them, but he was also willing to do them, to live them out in his life, to allow God to be all that he's promised to be. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
He said, God is my shield. He's promised that in Psalm 84, 11. Maybe he thought about Proverbs 2. Look at Proverbs 2 and verse 7. Proverbs 2 verse 7 says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Notice that there's a caveat there in both of these verses. He gives, withholds no good thing to those who walk uprightly. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. God longs to give us blessings. God longs to give us good things. And they come as a result of following what he's asked us to do. Go back to Psalms chapter 5 and verse 12. This has become one of my favorite promises as of late. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 11 But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Do you want to have more rejoicing, more joy in Jesus in your life? Then put your trust in God. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Ezra knew this promise. He knew that God had promised to defend him. He knew that if he put his trust in God, he could go across the desert with $170 million and trust that God would defend him, that God was faithful. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. Catch this. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Isn't that beautiful? God has promised to surround you with favor as with a shield. That means that nothing can touch you except for that is according to God's favor if you're trusting fully in Jesus. If you're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul wasn't just coming up with a new inspiration, but Paul saw this throughout the Old Testament. Paul knew that this is the principle of Scripture, that when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, when we follow God with our whole heart, that he promises that anything in our life he will turn around for good. And as Ezra contemplated walking across the desert with $170 million, facing trials that he didn't know how to face, facing the problem of not knowing how to care for his children, of not knowing how to care for that group of people. They were unarmed, unskilled, and they knew that people were laying in ambush against him. He said, I can trust in God. God's going to work all things together for good. But he didn't just stop there. He increased his faith by fasting and prayer. Just like Jesus talked about when you're facing a big challenge, fasting and prayer is such a powerful thing. And next week we're going to look a little bit more at the backstory of these three stories and what God was up to and how prayer and fasting played into that. But here you have Ezra fasting and praying, asking that God would be with them. And then in chapter 8 it tells us that the good hand of the Lord was upon them. And that they accomplished all that God sent them to do. Friends, there's power when you believe, when you trust in Jesus. He longs to pour blessing into your life. He longs to favor every area of your life. But there's an important thing for us to realize here. Because if we just think about having God's favor in our life, you might wonder, well, I've been faithful to God. I've been following God. But why doesn't it seem like it's always good that's happening in my life? Why does it seem like I face difficulties and trials in my life? Have you wondered that? I have sometimes. 
I've wondered, you know, if I have enough faith, does that mean that I'm not going to face any more financial struggles? Does that mean that I'm no longer going to have my car break down, that I'll no longer have problems with relationships in my family? Look at Hebrews chapter 11 with me. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul is breaking down faith, and he gives us some powerful descriptions. In a few verses, he just lists all of the powerful things that faith has done. A bunch of the powerful things that faith has done. Starting in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? He's already gone through a whole bunch of Israel's history. He says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. That sounds like a pretty powerful thing that faith does. Worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of the lions. Think of Daniel and the lion's den quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. That sounds like Ezra going across the desert. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead back to life again. And if we just stop there, we think, man, faith really does result in the hand of God being upon us for good. And it's this euphoric experience here and now. But he goes on to say this. Others, remember this is by faith. These are people that are living, trusting in God. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials and mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. How many of you want to sign up for that list of things? By faith, you can be tormented. By faith, you can have the experience of Isaiah, who the evil king Manasseh took him and put him inside of a log and took a saw and sawed the log in half with him in the middle of the log. That's the result of faith, Paul says. But wait a second, why should I want faith in my life? I want the faith that experiences what Ezra did in shielding me from all of my enemies, but how does this kind of faith help me? How is this helpful in my life? Is faith really like this? Does faith allow bad things to happen in my life? It goes on to say this, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Run the race with endurance, realizing that faith is trust in God, that He is working out good in your life, even when you're diagnosed with cancer. That He is working out good in your life, even when something difficult happens in your family. Believing that He does care about you, even when you get in a car accident. Friends, we live in a sinful world. We live in a world that is full of death and pain. There's a popular saying, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it yourself, and you probably said it with good intentions. I think I've said it myself before. It goes like this, 
everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Usually when we say that, we're implying that God is in control of everything, right? Is that the case? Is that the case as we look at the news over the past two weeks and we see a bombing in Manchester where kids are killed brutally by a terrorist? Was that God's intention? Was that God's plan? Or is God big enough that on this planet as He's given us the loving freedom of choice, is it that God is big enough to work all of our evil choices around for good in the lives of those who love Him, the lives of those who are called according to His purpose? Friends, that can actually be one of the greatest testimonies. For Ezra, it was a huge testimony that he trusted in God to defend him. But what if all of that money had been taken away from him In the midst of that trial, his reaction could have been, I would suggest, an even greater witness. Jesus himself shows us this. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us to rejoice when we experience sufferings. But then right after that, he tells us something powerful about what will be the result. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, Jesus says, when you suffer persecution. Rejoice when people revile you. Rejoice when your boss mistreats you, when your neighbor says things about you, when your spouse is being unkind. Rejoice? How is that possible? How can I have peace in the midst of the storms of my life? It's by faith, by clinging to to God and believing that He in His loving watch care in your life has His hand upon you for good and that nothing can touch you. He favors you in your life. That's why Psalm 5, the psalmist could say, I shout for joy because His favor surrounds me like a shield. Nothing can touch me except for that it is for my good. When we live our lives believing this, look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Us becoming salt, and then verse 14, becoming light in the world, is a result of how we live in the midst of a difficult world, filled with problems and trials. When we allow God to fill us with His Holy Spirit, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. When we are filled with His Holy Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace in the midst of trial, God is able to turn all things around for good and through that to lead others to see His goodness. We become salt. We become light. I love what it says in the book Ministry of Healing. Page 488, it says, All our sufferings and sorrows, all our temptations and trials, all our sadness and griefs, all our persecutions and privations, in short, All things work together for our good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. Friends, educate yourself to have unlimited confidence in God. Cast all your cares upon Him. How is it that we have the hand of God upon us? We talked about 1 Peter 5 verses 7 where it says that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 
when we cast all of our cares upon him, when we humble ourselves like that little child in the hands of Jesus, we can trust that all things, all experiences, everything that happens in our life, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how bad it is, when we come to know Jesus for who he is, we can trust that it is for our good. That can be hard to believe when you're facing a really difficult trial. Nick's father was a pastor, and Nick was born with things that his parents would have never hoped would have happened. At first, his father was watching as the delivery was taking place, and he was there at the head of the bed. He was there with the the mom, and as, as Nick was delivered, he just saw his shoulder. The father saw Nick's shoulder, and as he saw his shoulder, he saw that Nick didn't have an arm. This was traumatic to the father, and he couldn't handle it, and he he went out of the room, and he was thinking, what am I going to do? How do I tell my wife that our son doesn't have an arm? He was sick to his stomach. How could God have allowed this to happen? Then as he came back in the room, he finally worked up his courage, and he was coming back in the room. He saw the look on the nurse's face, and he realized that they all realized how bad it was that Nick didn't have an arm. He said, I I already saw Nick doesn't have an arm. They said, your son doesn't have arms or legs. This is what little Nick Vujicic looked like. Hopefully we can get a picture up on the screen. Little Nick had no arms and no legs. He just had a little nub down at the bottom that was where his legs should have been. That was all that he had. How do you handle that as a parent? Seeing your child that should be born fully formed, seeing your child that should be beautifully formed to come out with no hands, no arms, and no legs. Nick had a fairly normal childhood, but when he entered middle school, you know how it is in middle school as kids begin to tease you and you begin to wonder why you exist. Well, for Nick, that was a hundred times worse. As Nick went through about eight, the age of eight until he was 15, he entered into severe depression, wondering why God had allowed this to happen to him. He was ready to give up. In fact, he tried to commit suicide. He failed at that too, and he was just in the depths of depression. And then one day, his mom shared this article with him about another person who had experienced severe injury in their lives and who had turned that around to be a testimony for God who would believe that God works all things together for good in their lives. And Nick realized that he had a lot of things to be thankful for. He could still breathe. He could still see. He read a story about a person who was blind and realized he still had his eyesight. And he even had that little nub that enabled them to put him in a wheelchair and he could wheel around. And in fact, they taught him to swim. If you go on YouTube, you can see videos of Nick Vujicic swimming in the pool, his, his little... Nub goes like this and just spins and propels him through the water. Nick learned to surf, but soon Nick realized that he had a huge testimony to share. And they began to set up tables in front of school classrooms, and they would bring Nick, and they would put him there, and he would begin to speak to school assemblies. He would begin to speak to entire churches. Before long, he was speaking to thousands at a time, telling them about the goodness of God, telling them about 
what God wanted for their lives, telling them that God had a purpose for your life, even if you feel like everything has gone wrong, that God really does work all things together for good in your life. Here's a picture of Nick speaking in a classroom, and you see all the kids there as they are excitedly, if we can get the next slide up, they are excitedly looking at Nick as he's there speaking. Nick gives hugs, in fact. Nick went on to be married and to have kids. They estimate on his website that his videos and his speaking have impacted about 600 million people around the world. Nick wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for having been disabled. Friends, is it possible that God wants to work absolutely everything around in your life for your good? Is it possible that he is a sun and a shield to you, that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This sometimes sounds too good to be true and we're in the midst of a trial and we're in the midst of a difficulty. How do we have this kind of faith? It comes just like Ezra. From starting now, to build that faith by going to the Word of God by studying the promises, studying His commands, and asking that God leads us to trust in Him like Ezra trusted in Him. And then we too will know that the good hand of God is on us for good when we seek Him. I want to make a commitment to seek God more earnestly, more completely, more constantly. I want to make a commitment to go to God more diligently in Scripture to become an expert in the law just like Ezra was because I want to have that kind of faith in my life. I don't know about you. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you to kneel with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we're here kneeling before you. We're longing for a greater faith. We're longing for faith that moves mountains. Lord, lead us to faith in you that is unflinching, Lead us to faith in you that believes that you are a shield to us and that absolutely nothing can touch us except for what you intend for our good. Lord, increase our faith. And may this be a mighty witness and testimony to those around us as they witness our peace in trial, as they witness how we don't have anxiety in our lives as we cast all of our cares upon you. Father, forgive us for so often we have misrepresented you. We have exhibited a lack of faith in what you are capable of doing in our lives. Lord, help us to cast all of our cares upon you, truly trusting that you are working all things together for our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.